0: Amen. So Matthew chapter 22, we pick up our study in verse 34. Matthew, one of Jesus's 12 apostles, disciples, writes verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he, Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, The son of David. And he said to them, How then does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on, Did anyone dare question him anymore? Well, you know what? My prayer uh, this morning is that God's heart, uh, God's word would go deep into our hearts. And, you know, God loves us so very much. It's my prayer this morning in recognition of how great his love is for us, how amazing his love is for us, that as we come to the study this morning, Our hearts will be open, ready to receive the Word of God uh, with a a predetermined surrender. You know, just a purpose in our heart that whatever the Lord would speak to us this morning through His Holy Spirit, we would uh, choose to obey it even before we hear Him speak. That our hearts would be set on obedience. And I pray that each one of us would have ears to hear what the the Lord would want to speak to each one of us personally this morning. And I do believe, I believe that God very much desires to speak to each one of us individually this morning. He wants us to take what he has to say and apply it to our lives in order that we might enjoy, you know, the deepest, the fullest fellowship with him that's possible just a a deep relationship, walking with Jesus Christ every day. And I believe that he wants us to enter into a deeper, closer walk with him. You know, uh, that's what he desires for us this morning. So as we come to our study this morning, we want to remember that Jesus, uh, you know, he's just a few days away from the cross. As I said last week, he is literally... uh, You know, these are literally his last days on earth before Jesus lays down his life as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. Jesus' popularity at this point in his ministry, uh, his popularity with the common man is just off the charts. But as his popularity has been growing, you know, the popularity of the religious leaders of Israel is in serious decline, it's decreasing quickly. And Because of this, the religious leaders, they they feel threatened by Jesus. And so what what they've been doing, we've been studying, is they come to Jesus asking these carefully crafted questions in hopes to trip him up, in hopes that they can catch him in something that he says in order to discredit him before the people or have something to accuse him of with the uh, uh, Roman officials. They bring to Jesus the most controversial questions that they were, that were being debated during their time, Uh, questions that brought division among the Jewish people themselves, right? And they bring these questions in hopes, again, that he would say something that would alienate at least half of his followers and bring an end to his popularity. You know, the disciples uh, of the Pharisees, along with the Herodians, we we looked at it a, a little bit ago, a few weeks ago. They came and asked Jesus about paying taxes to Caesar. And, you know, that's a very controversial topic amongst the Jews of the day. And right after that, in fact, we saw it last week, the same day, the Sadducees came to Jesus asking him questions about the resurrection. And as we saw last week, Jesus wonderfully corrects their misunderstanding of the resurrection and life after death. And so this morning, as we continue our study, we read in verse 34, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Now the word translated silence there, it literally means to muzzle, right? Jesus' answer to the question of the Sadducees regarding the resurrection, his answer just muzzled them. It stopped them dead in their tracks. They had no comeback. They were silenced. And as we saw last week, the multitudes that were listening, they were just astonished at his teaching. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were on opposite ends of the spectrum. The Pharisees, they were the legalists of the nation of Israel. They were intent intent on keeping every detail of the law in order to gain a right standing with God. And theirs was an outward righteousness. But the Sadducees, they were the complete opposites. They were the religious liberals of their day. And when again, we saw last week that they rejected all of the Old Testament, except for the first five books of Moses. You know, they didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in angels or demons. They didn't believe in life after death. They didn't believe in a final judgment or eternal rewards or eternal punishment right? So because these two groups didn't really get along, you know, I imagine it's probably so that the Pharisees were somewhat pleased that Jesus embarrassed the Sadducees with his answer to the question regarding the resurrection and heaven. And so in verse 35, it says, then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question testing him. Matthew says uh, that one of them, and what he means by that is is that one of the, from the group of the Pharisees, this this guy that comes forward, he comes to Jesus. He's a Pharisee, and Matthew identifies him uh, as a lawyer. So with that identification, we're to understand that this guy is a scribe. He was an expert in the Old Testament law. He was an expert in God's law. This man had given his entire life to the study of the Old Testament. And the idea for the scribes were that they would they would be these experts. And when somebody uh, had a problem and wanted to know what God thought about their situation, the things that they were dealing with, you know, they would come to a scribe and they would ask him. And he would give them an answer from the Old Testament uh, regarding what God would have them to do in the situation that they were facing. The scribes, They knew the Old Testament inside and out. They were the experts. And Matthew says that this scribe came to Jesus to test him. Now, this is where it's important for us to look at the other Gospels too. Because Mark's parallel account indicates that he comes to Jesus showing respect, perceiving that Jesus answered the Sadducees well is what it says, right? So, You know, some people think, well, hey, there's a contradiction here between Matthew and Mark. They can't get their story straight. But, you know, I don't think this is a contradiction. What I think is going on is that he came to Jesus, uh, you know, not to test him in order to trip him up or to trap him in something that he had to say. I think he comes, he recognizes that Jesus answered well And he has answers to the difficult questions that the religious leaders have been debating endlessly. And I think he recognizes Jesus spoke with authority. He speaks with authority and he comes to Jesus respectfully, maybe even humbly. He comes to Jesus, I think, with a very sincere question, a genuine question, a difficult question, because he's looking for an answer that will put an end to this debate. He's not testing him to try to trip him up. He's just looking for the truth to his question. You see, the religious leaders of this day, they they debated endlessly about which commandment was the most important one. The scribes created a system that categorized the 613 commandments that they came up with from the law of Moses. 365 negative commandments, you shall not, type of commandments, one for each day. And 248 positive commandments, thou shalt, type of commandments, one for each generation from Adam, 248 generations from Adam to their time right? I find it interesting. I don't know that this is why they settled on 613 commandments, but this is the kind of thing the Jews did back then. I find it interesting that if you take the 10 commandments and you count each letter in the Hebrew, there's 613 letters. You know, maybe that's why they ended up 613 uh, commandments. I don't know. But you can imagine 613 commandments. I mean, you can just imagine how difficult that would be to keep track of all the commandments. It would be just next to it impossible to do it. And that was the problem that these religious leaders were facing, right? So in order to keep track and obey all these commandments that they came up with, what they did was they divided the commandments into heavy commandments, you know, uh, heavy commandments were more important commandments to obey. And then you also had the light commandments. You know, they were the, uh, I don't know, they were the less important commandments to to obey. I almost shot out a joke. They were less filling commandments. But um, yeah, they were light commandments. And And this allowed them, this system of heavy and light commandments allowed them to focus on the more important commandments, and then allow them to ignore the lesser, uh, unimportant commandments of God. And that's what they did. They would teach that it was okay to disobey a light commandment, you know, in order to keep a heavy commandment. Something like, you know, it would be okay to lie, even though God says, thou shalt not lie. Well, you know, it's not what he means. It's okay to lie if a greater good would result from it. You know, I'm not very smart. I'm always, you know, surprised like with these things. I'm just not smart enough. To me, you would think that if God gave a commandment, whether you thought it was an important commandment or not, I mean, who cares if it's light or heavy? You'd think that you would consider it important just because God gave it. You know, God, in my opinion, I don't know, I don't think God says things just to hear himself talk. You know, he means what he says. Well, the Bible actually refutes this idea of light and heavy commandments. In James chapter two, verse 10, James writes, for whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. All it takes to be guilty of the whole law is stumbling or failing in one little point found in the law. Paul said something similar in Galatians 3.10. He says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law, to do them. You know, you can't just pick and choose the things that you want to obey that God says. But that's what the religious leaders were doing. So this expert on the Old Testament law, he comes to Jesus and he says, verse 36, Jesus, which is the great commandment in the law? You know, the scribe scribe is asking Jesus to give him, Jesus' viewpoint, give him his viewpoint on which commandment is the greatest. So that he can take that one great commandment and interpret all the rest of the commandments by it. That's what he's looking to do. You know, I think it's kind of funny. You know, I think, you know, the religious leaders spent so much time debating the law, dividing the law into categories. And as a result of all of this, the law just became so ridiculously complex. And now this scribe comes to Jesus, looking to him to simplify it all for him. And I just find that funny. In verse 37, Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. Jesus goes past the debate of the heavy and light commandments. And he goes to the most important commandment, quoting the Shema found in Deuteronomy 6, verses four and five, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. It's called the Shema because it starts out by saying, hear, O Israel. The word Shema comes from the Hebrew word that just means to hear. The Shema was a statement of faith that every devout Jew recited twice a day. They do it even today, right? They they say it once in the morning, they say it once in the evening. And on top of that, Every religious Jew wrote out the Shema on a little scroll and placed it in a mezuzah. And if you don't know what a mezuzah is, it's a little box that's on the doorpost of a a person's house, and it contained the Shema, right? A religious Jew, when he would enter into the house, he would kiss his fingers, and he would touch the mezuzah, touching uh, the Shema. The Shema is also written on a little scroll and placed in the Jewish, uh, the Jews' phylacteries, even today, right? And you've maybe seen an Orthodox Jew with a little box on his forehead. That's the phylactery. And That little box contained the Shema because they were to keep the word of God on their minds. Of course, it's a little bit of a misunderstanding. The word of God is to be constantly on our minds, but not tied to our forehead. I mean, what good does that do? You might have also seen Orthodox Jews with leather straps around their forearms. Um, That too comes from Deuteronomy. They're to bind the word of God to uh, to their hands as a sign It says Deuteronomy 6.8. You know, again, a little bit of a misunderstanding, but the idea is that the word of God is always to be close at hand, always to be on our mind. And it's interesting to note that Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God. The word there, your, in verse 37, is singular. You're to love your God, right? Yes, he's our God, it's true, but he's to be your God. That's what he wants. That's what's important, is that he's your God, that he's my God. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. You know, the love that we have for the Lord is to be a total and complete love, right? It's a voluntary commitment, a personal and complete love that's wholehearted and comprehensive. We're to love God with all our heart, it says. And the heart is a place of emotion, We're to love him with a deep emotional love. The highest use of human emotion is to use it in our expression of our love for God. One of the ways we love God with all of our heart is through expressing our emotion in song, just like we were worshiping this morning. You know, uh, singing is an emotional expression. And it's a beautiful thing, you know, that we've been given just this gift of worship where we can just get lost in worship pouring our heart out to the lord singing about his amazing grace singing about his the unbelievable goodness that he's demonstrated towards us you know singing about his steadfast love for us i mean we have a need to express our emotion to god and worship songs they're an avenue for us to express that emotion, to express our love for Him with all of our heart. Sometimes people think, you know, the expression of our emotion is, uh, you know, a, a, a sign of weakness. You know, people think that expressing emotions can be carnal or or, or bad or, or or whatever. You know, emotions can be carnal. It's true. But to categorize all emotions as carnal or a sign of weakness, that's going way too far. You know, Jesus wept. He showed his emotions. Are you saying that Jesus is somehow carnal or weak? It's ridiculous. We're to love our God with all of our soul also. Our soul is who we are. I mean, uh, this body you see before you today, it's just an outward shell. It's not really who I am. Who I am is is deep within this shell. Our soul is the true man or the true woman within. It speaks of our free will, speaks of the choices and decisions we make in life. All of our choices and the decisions that we make in in this life are to be used to express our love for God. As we fall in love with the Lord, when we see how good He is to us, how undeserving we are of His love, of Him, I mean, really, I'm surprised that He wants to have anything to do with someone like me, that He wants to associate with someone like me in any way. I mean, it's just crazy to me. I fall so regularly. I so often am doing the wrong thing but he loves me, and he picks me up, and he brushes me off, and he says, hey, let's try it again, Gar. Let's go forward. You know, I think of, you know, just how amazing his love, and is when we realize how great his love is towards us, how loving he is towards us. You know what? We should stop and say, make a, a choice, and just say, Lord, I want every choice I make in life every decision I make in life to be a reflection of my love for you. You know, our choices and our decisions in life then become just as beautiful as any worship song will ever sing to the Lord when we have that attitude. It's such a privilege to love him and to worship him with all that we are, everything that we are, everything that we ever hope to be, everything that we have, you know, just as a result of the decisions and choices that we make in life. It's such a privilege. And Jesus says, we're to love God with all our mind. We're to love the Lord with our intellect, right? We're to allow our thoughts to be consumed with our love for God. The greatest thing, will ever apply our minds to in this life is knowing God, to explore the depths of his word, to discover the riches that we have in the promises made to us, his promises. You know, and then to take those things that we learn regarding the greatness of God and share that worth of knowledge with the world around us, get to share that beauty, and wonder of god you know the the grace and love that god has has extended to us you know we get to carry that message to the world what an amazing privilege we have you know and then at the end of our lives you know to be able to declare that the greatest thing that i ever engaged my mind in was knowing god discovering his love for me growing in in Uh, my knowledge of his grace and goodness towards me, to think great thoughts, a lifetime of great thoughts about how great our God is, to love and bless God in return for his goodness towards us. It's the single greatest endeavor of the thought life we could ever hope to enjoy. How terrible would it be if we lived in a world where there was no God to fix our thoughts on. How terrible would that be? How terrible would it be if there was no Bible to set our minds on? You know, nothing of the richest of God's word to contemplate. None of the truths of the Bible to discover. How terrible would it be if, you know, all we had to meditate on in this life was the emptiness of this life, the emptiness that life has to offer, the things of this world that are just passing away. How terrible it would be if all we could think about was just the emptiness of this world and the sin found in this world. How terrible would it be if all we had to think about was the frustrations that accompany this life, the meaninglessness of this life? You know, I think... I think... Um, if that was the extent of of the possible things that our minds could embrace, you know, how sad would this life be? I, I think, you know what, it would be so devastating if we couldn't place our hopes on something like God, like our savior, if we couldn't fix our minds on the word of God. You know what, I think that, you know, we would probably wanna take matters into our own hands because it would just be so depressing that we would just want to end the pain. But praise the Lord that there is a God, that we have a God, you know, that we have a wonderful and great loving God to think about, to exercise our minds with, that we have the word of God to reveal to us just how great our God is, you know, uh, that we have an ability to love God with all of our minds what a privilege that is we have this tremendous indescribable privilege to love god with every ounce of our being with every fiber of our existence and we have the freedom to love god with everything that we are everything that's within us holding nothing back and you know what he's so deserving of that type of love from us he's so worthy of that type that kind of love and affection and commitment. Our love for God is to be a total love, an all-consuming love, uh, a dominating love, a love that governs all our thoughts and the motivations behind all our actions. It's uh, It's to be a love that results in an absolute, unquestioning obedience to the Lord and all we do and all we say, and all we think. We're to love God in such a way that there's no rivals, no competition for our attention or our affection. Right? We're to love God with all that we are, all that we have, everything within us. And if we will do that, we will be so unbelievably rich as a result of giving ourselves to loving God in that way. In Mark's parallel account, he includes Jesus saying that we're to love God with all of our strength. We're to love God with all of our physical strength. This includes our actions as acts of worship to use our body and our physical health and our well-being to bring glory to him. It's saying with complete sincerity, Lord, I want every breath that I take, every breath, beat of my heart to be used for your glory. Lord, I want my life to be spent for you as an act of worship. Lord, nothing less will satisfy me and my love for you. I want my life, which you so graciously gave me, to be used uh, in one more way as an expression of my love for you one more way every minute, every day, every year. Jesus said, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And all of our life, there's nothing that is before this commandment to love God. And there's nothing we can do that's greater and giving all that we are to him, completely to him, 100%, um, given over to him, total obedience as an act of worship to God, uh, because that's what we we were created for. That's what he saved us for. Hebrews 12, 29 says, our God is a consuming fire. He's quoting, uh, the writer of the Hebrews is quoting Deuteronomy 4, 26 there how I desire to be consumed. We need to have this desire to be consumed by him. Everything that I am, everything that we are, consumed with him. And we read in Hebrews 12 two, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. This kind of loving response from each of us was the joy that was set before Jesus the joy that strengthened him to endure the cross, despising the shame of the cross, despising the humiliation of the cross, you know, enduring the separation uh, between him and the Father, our total and complete surrender and devotion and love and affection given to Jesus. You know what? That was the joy that was set before him. And the question that I ask in understanding that, is will any of us dare to rob Jesus of that joy? In verse 29, Jesus goes on and says, the second is like it. You know, without being asked, Jesus gives them a second great commandment. Jesus gives them two for one. This is the bonus round here. This is the bonus answer. And you know what I see in this? You just stop right there and think about it. What does it tell us about Jesus? You know, Jesus exceeds all expectations. How glorious is that? Jesus said, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This second great commandment is found in Leviticus 19.18. Why do you think that Jesus gives them this second commandment unsolicited? Well, you know, I think that there's a couple reasons for this. One, we need to remember that Jesus is speaking in front of a very large crowd here, right? Just this mass of people. The popularity, uh, not popularity, but probably the overwhelming majority within this crowd, 95, maybe even as much as 99% of them would agree with Jesus and say, saying that the greatest commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. You know, I think that what's going on here. Is that Jesus is anticipating their next question, right? He's anticipating them saying, Oh yeah, of course, everyone knows that, you know, but but after that one is what we mean. What's the great commandment after that one? Secondly, I think that Jesus gives them this bonus answer uh, because the second commandment is, you know, intimately linked with the first commandment. Jesus says it's like the first and most important commandment to love the Lord. In other words, it's connected to it. It's inseparable uh, from the first commandment to love God. One of the best ways God has given us to express our love for him is by loving our neighbor, by loving people around us. Our love for God should, it needs to, translate into a love for people around us. And the the order is actually important. It's first God, then man. No one can truly come to know God personally and deeply without developing a love for our fellow man. A deep and complete love for God is what makes loving our fellow man possible, right? To love the love for our fellow man, it's actually grounded in our love for God. Yes, it goes without saying that people around us can be terribly frustrating. You know, they can be hurtful at times. And I confess, I do my share of frustrating and hurting people around me. But to know God, to experience God, to grow in our knowledge of God is to become like him. And Jesus loves people. Jesus is in the people loving business, you know, that's just the way it is. We also want to note that Jesus not only tells us to love our neighbor, but he goes on to tell us the degree to which we're to love them. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You might want to underline in your Bible, as yourself, okay? In other words, what he's saying is you're to love your neighbor as you already love yourself, right? We're to look at other people in life. We're to look at the things that they're going through. And we're to consider their circumstances. And then we're to ask ourselves if I were in their shoes, if I were in the midst of their circumstances, what would I want someone to do for me? And then we go do that. You know, to look at someone in their situation and say to ourselves if I were in the exact same situation, What would I want someone to say to me? And then we're to say it in that situation. It might mean buying a bag of groceries for somebody and leaving it at their doorstep. Buying a tank of gas for somebody that's in need. It might mean, you know, inviting somebody over for lunch and sitting with them and just being a loving listener, listening to them tell you all the things that they're going through. It might be as simple as just sending an encouraging text, making a phone call, and sharing a Bible verse. This kind of love can take all kinds of different forms. But it's rooted and grounded in our love for God as an expression of our love for Him. You know, people will say, you know, Jesus said, you know, we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. But what if I don't like myself? You know, what if I hate myself? I can't love my neighbor until I learn to love myself. Once I I learn to love myself first, then I'll know how to love my neighbor. You know I mean? It's kind of silly. Believe it or not, this goes on in the church. This is the way people feel. Jesus is not saying that we need to love ourselves first and foremost before we love others. He's saying that We're to love our neighbors as we already love ourselves. The reality is we don't need to learn to love ourselves anymore because we already love ourselves quite a bit. And we do it quite naturally. You've probably all have heard the example that every pastor gives to demonstrate a person's love for him or herself. You know, the example is a picture taken at the family reunion you know, the college or high school reunion. You know, it's a picture of you and a bunch of all your friends gathered together. And when that picture is shown to you, who's the picture that, who's the person you're most concerned about in that picture? You know, you look for yourselves in that picture, right? What makes that picture a good one or not? It's a good one if I look good in it. You know, that's what it makes. I mean, you get that picture, you start scanning it, and you're looking at the people. You're Unimportant, unimportant, unimportant. Oh, there we are. It's me, you know. I look terrible. It's a bad picture. You know, we judge how good the picture is by how good we look in the picture. Everyone else in the picture can look like they just came off the pages of GQ or Vogue magazine, whatever, they look amazing. But because your eyes are closed, maybe because your hair is a little messy, You know, man, that's a rotten picture. Get rid of it. Or as my wife likes to say, delete it. Sorry. It's not in my notes. I just thought of that. You know, the converse is also true, though. You look at that picture, and everyone else is cross-eyed, drool coming out of their mouth, you know. Their shirt's all unbuttoned, different. It's all wrinkled, you know. And, uh, you know, you look great. They got lipstick all over their face. You know, it's every place but on their lips. But you look great. And that's the picture that gets posted on Facebook. Everybody looks horrible. People will sometimes say, you know what, I hate myself. I never take a good picture. Well, that's not entirely true. You know, because if you hated yourself, you'd be happy you took crummy pictures. I mean, just think about it. Nobody hates himself and then wishes he took a better picture. That's not the way it works. Have you ever noticed you're in Costco? You're going to go to the checkout. You see a short line, so you race over there to get in that line. And when you get in that line, all of a sudden, the cashier needs to get some change from the manager. and Now you're waiting. All the other lines are speeding past you, and uh, yours is just not going anyplace. Why does that bother you? Why does that bother you? Because you're in the slow line. That's why it bothers you. And if you're anything like me, you hate being in the slow line. You're looking to get out of it. Cause you know what? I got places that I gotta be. I'm important. I gotta get out. You know, the Bible tells us that we actually really think a lot about ourselves. The Bible comes from the position that all mankind in this fallen world is fairly self-consumed. We tend to be selfish and self-centered. And that's why the Bible instructs us. Um, You know, 2 Corinthians 5.15, Paul writes saying, he, speaking of Jesus, died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Philippians 2.4 instructs us, Let each of you look out, not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. None of us had to be taught to be selfish or self-centered. You don't have to teach, you know, our kids to say mine, to throw a tantrum, to conk another little kid on top of the head. When they come, they want to play with one of our kids' toys. Nobody had to teach our kids to to, you know, kick and scream in the grocery store, throw a fit, make a scene because we didn't buy them something. That just comes natural to all of us. That's all part of the death sentence that's passed down to us from Adam and Eve. The problem with saying, I need to love myself more before I can uh, love others around me, before I can love my neighbors, is we'll never get to that place. Loving ourselves, would become all-consuming right? And then it will just add to the level of selfishness that's already present within my life. Jesus says we already love ourselves enough to obey the second commandment. And when we do obey it, it results in the absolute best life imaginable. John said, 1 John 3.14, we know that we've passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brethren abides in death. Loving our brothers is an outward evidence of salvation. A person who fails to love his brother needs to examine where they actually stand in light of the cross. Jesus said, John 13, 35, By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have loved one for another our love for our brothers and sisters will be evidence that we're his disciples. It's an evidence that we're his followers, right? If a total unbeliever walked through that door, came into our church, they should be immediately struck with the idea that we're different from the rest of the world because of the love that we have one for another, because of the love that we would lavish on them, walking them in... welcoming them into our presence, into the church. Our love for each other is to be a witness of the reality of Jesus as our Savior. The Apostle John, he asked the question, 1 John four twenty, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? He's saying that loving our brothers is a sign of loving God. Loving other people is a sign of loving God. It's impossible to love God whom we have not seen and have a, a resentment or an ill will towards uh, you know, a brother we have seen. Jesus is not saying to us that loving our brothers is dependent upon, you know, of loving ourselves. It's dependent on loving him. We can't separate loving God and loving others. You can't go to church on Sunday and then trash talk your boss on Monday. You can't go to life group on Wednesday and then speak harshly about your neighbor on Friday because they don't keep their yard up. Because they don't, I don't know, what's a trucky example? They don't plow their sidewalk? Is that something? Yeah, you know what? Whatever the example is, you know what? We need to love people around us as a witness of our love for God. That's not the way it's to be, just trash-talking people if we're believers. Jesus gives us a little commentary on these two commands in verse 40. He says, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. What Jesus is saying is that these two commandments are the summary of the entirety of the Old Testament, all of it. All of it, every single word from Genesis 1, 1 all the way through Malachi 4, 6. All 1,299 pages in my Bible summed up by these two commandments. And I think you might want to take note of the word hang there in verse 40. The word in Greek means to hang someone or something. It means to suspend and it means to crucify. It's interesting to note that the first and greatest command to love God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind refers to our vertical relationship with God. And the second great command, which is like the first to love our neighbors as ourselves, has to do with our horizontal relationships uh, with the people around us. And when you put those two commandments together, you have a picture of the cross. The cross is the summary of the entire old testament the cross is the encapsulation of the law and the prophets the cross is the supreme demonstration of love it's on the cross where perfect love for god and perfect love for mankind perfect love for you and i hung jesus loved the father perfectly and submitted to the cross in order to be the perfect sacrifice for sin Jesus loved you and I perfectly and demonstrated his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The cross is a perfect demonstration of Jesus loving God the Father with all of his heart, all of his mind, all of his soul, and all of his strength. And the cross is a perfect demonstration of Jesus loving his neighbor as himself. The cross is where love hung love for the Father, love for you and me, love for all mankind. It's only there on the cross where Jesus hung that makes it possible for us to obey these two commandments of God. We can never think that anyone is able to get into heaven by obeying these two commandments. Nobody earns their way into heaven. The only uh, thing that gets us into heaven It's only the person who's placed their faith in Jesus as their savior that is gonna get into heaven, right? And it's only that person that will have the will to do and the power to do these two commands. Apart from Jesus Christ, apart from faith in Christ, apart from being born again, apart from the Holy Spirit taking up residence in our life, you know, apart from all of that There is no ability to obey these commands. Apart from having Jesus come into our lives, no matter how hard a person tries apart from the Holy Spirit, obedience to these commands is actually impossible because we have a sin nature. It's only faith in Jesus that sets us free from sin. It's only faith in Jesus that sets us free so that we can love others as we've been loved. Apart from the Holy Spirit, it's impossible. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But once we're born again in response to his great demonstration of love for us, he gives us the desire, that's the will, and the ability, that's the power, to keep these two commandments. Now, As we go on, Jesus poses two questions to the Pharisees that are, you know, that are listening to this conversation he's having with the scribe. Verse 41, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? You know, it looks like Jesus is asking them something that's totally out of left field. It looks like it has nothing to do with the question that the scribe uh, brings to Jesus and asks him. But as Jesus is talking about loving others, talking about the summation of the law and the prophets in a single word, again, mainly love, he turns to the Pharisees and he asks them these two questions in order to get them to see that he is the Messiah, right? And by seeing that and then receiving him as the Messiah, by placing their faith in him for salvation, the result is that they'll receive the will and the power to keep these two... Commandments. They come to Jesus and ask him the what. And Jesus now is going to give them the how. He asked them, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said, The son of David. You know, I'm sure that the Pharisees said it with confidence. They maybe even said it with a little bit of contempt. You know, the son of David, of course, who doesn't know that? They believed that the Messiah would come as a physical descendant of King David. They believed that the, the Messiah would be, you know, a really good guy. He would be a great man, uh, a great political leader, you know, maybe even a great military leader. Whatever he is, he's just a man. Just a man. They didn't believe that the Messiah would be divine. They didn't believe that the Messiah would be God in human flesh as Jesus claimed to be. And so knowing that's where these guys are coming from, Jesus says to them, how then does does David in the spirit call him Lord? Jesus is going to point them to Psalm 110, written by King David, the same uh, David that they believed the Messiah would descend from. Jesus is wanting to reveal to them that when David wrote of the Messiah, David understood him to be more than just a man. In verse 43, he said to them, how then does David say in the spirit, Jesus points out to them that David wrote this Psalm 110 under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. How then does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying the Lord, you want to notice it, it's all caps, so this Lord is Jehovah. This is God the Father. David says, the Lord says to my Lord, the second Lord there is the Messiah, sit at my right hand. Only the Messiah would be invited to sit at the right hand of God the Father till I make your enemies your footstool. Now here's King David, the greatest king in the history of Israel. He's the gold standard of Uh, you know, Jewish kings, so to speak. Here's King David calling the Messiah his Lord. In verse 45, Jesus asked him, if David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? Jesus's point is this. If King David calls the Messiah his Lord, his master, then the Messiah must be something more than just a mere man. You know, in the Old Testament prophecies, they did teach that the Messiah would come from David's lineage, right? That he would be born of David. He would be a son of David. And see, in the Jewish eyes, because it's a patriarchal society, being the son of David, right? It would make him less than David. That's how they viewed things. It would make him less than David. Uh, A son was always considered to be less in position and authority than the Father. That's how they saw it. So Jesus is saying them to them is, how in the world can the Messiah be born of David's bloodline and be lesser than David because of it? And yet David declares the Messiah to be greater than him by calling him Lord or Master. The only possible conclusion This is what Jesus is leading them to. The only possible conclusion is that David, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, knew that the Messiah was greater than him. David declares clearly that the Messiah would be the son of David and his Lord and his master at the same time, that he would be both human and divine, just as Jesus was, just as Jesus currently is. People often will ask, when you share with people, you'll run across this question, they'll ask, why do I have to believe that Jesus is God in human flesh? I mean, why isn't it enough just to believe that he was a great man, you know, a a great teacher? Why isn't that enough? Well, this is why. If Jesus isn't divine, then he's not sinless. If he isn't sinless, he's not an acceptable sacrifice for sin. Because the sacrifice for sin needs to be without spot and blemish. It needs to be perfect. Only a perfect sacrifice can pay the price, the penalty for sinful man. It's impossible to be saved or to offer a sacrifice for sin, you know, uh, with something that is sinful. It's just like it's impossible for a drowning man to be rescued by another drowning man. It doesn't work. Salvation can only come through the sacrifice of a perfect savior. It's the innocent taking the place of the guilty. If you have a sinful savior, what you have is a savior who can't save. If Jesus is not divine, then he's not sinless. If he's not sinless, he can't save. It's just that simple. That's why Jesus speaks to these religious leaders who are bent on destroying him, trying to get them to realize, trying to lead them to understanding. He wants to give them something to think about as they walk away and plot his death, right? In order that they might come to the realization of who he is so that they'll place their faith in him as their personal savior and be saved. That's Jesus's heart. And notice the response of the, Pharisees, verse 46, no one was able to answer him as a word. Crickets. Just complete silence. And nobody can answer him. Nor did, uh, nor from that day on, did they dare to question him. The Pharisees and their disciples, the Herodians, the Sadducees, they've all failed to trip Jesus up to trap him. And by this, what's happening is they've unwittingly fulfilled scriptures in regards to proving that the Passover lamb was a perfect sacrifice without blemish, without a defect. Jesus has been examined. He's been observed. He's been abs- uh, scrutinized. And he's been proven to be an acceptable sacrifice for the sins of the world, to be an acceptable sacrifice for our sins. You know, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, maybe you're watching online, you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your savior, you need to know, and this is the message that we need to tell people who are, who are unsaved. They need to know that there is salvation in no other name. It's only found in Jesus. He is the perfect sacrifice for sin. Jesus alone saves us from our sins. And it's our sins that have separated us from a holy God. And it's our sins that demand judgment from that same holy and just God. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter who we talk to. We need to communicate to them. It doesn't matter what you've done. Jesus loves you and is calling you to be saved, to confess your sins and to turn from them, to place your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, You know, by, again, confessing him as your Lord, believing that he died on the cross for your sins, and that three days later he rose again. The Bible teaches that if a person will call out to him, he'll respond. And again, this needs to be our message, and it needs to be clear. If somebody's watching online that doesn't need this, you know, you need to turn to Christ today. Today is the day of salvation. Call out to Jesus to be set free today. And all it takes is just to pray, just a sincere prayer from your heart. Lord, forgive me. I believe in you. I believe you died on the cross for me, that you rose again. Lord, will you take my life? Will you change it? Use me for your glory. Lord, I give you my life now. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and give me the power to live for you, to grow in my love for you, to love others, to be a witness to those people that are around me. In your name, I pray, Jesus. That's all it takes. And then we have the privilege to assure them that God's heard that prayer and has cleansed them from all their sins. Man, being a Christian, loving God, loving people around us enough to share that message, what a privilege it is. Let's pray. Father, just... Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I thank you with all my heart for those people that shared that message with me. Lord, we thank you for those people that loved us enough to share the gospel with us. Lord, help us love enough now to share with others. Lord, help us to love you with all of our heart, all of our emotion, all of our mind, with all of our intellect, all of our souls, all the decisions and, and uh, our consciousness, Lord, our choices that we make. Lord, help us to love you with all of our strength, just everything that we are, our physical well-being given over to you. We give you praise, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.